2: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website,
0: solidaritybreakfast.org.au.
4: Solidarity forever!
0: Good morning, everybody. It's Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on this cold and rainy day, this Saturday morning. If you're listening by podcast, it's probably a less fearsome weather experience. But if you're under the doona... That's perfect, while we give you your dose of uh, politics with your Wheaties. Today, we're going to go to America. I got to a chance to catch up with Vince Emmanuel. Uh, he is an uh, activist in America, and it was actually a little bit before the dreadful events at uh, Charlottesville, Uh but it's a long conversation, so we're going to do it in two parts because it's the reflections of uh, activists under uh, under the present regime, the present uh, Trump regime. Uh, we're going to go on and uh, talk to Fair Go for Pensioners. We're actually, we're going to talk to Lou Wheeler. We're going to talk about the cuts to the uh, National Partnership Agreement, which uh, is all about cutting concessions to pensioners and uh, senior card holders, and, of course, about the cost of living and what that all means to people in uh, the present state of affairs. And uh, we're also going to then go on and uh, listen to This Is The Week That Was, which is a great round-up from Kevin Healy about uh, the various things that have been happening in America... No, that was a slip of the tongue. Australian politics. There is a little bit of a bleed from the American scene to the Australian scene, of course. But uh, there's been so many hair-raising things that have been happening in the Australian Parliament that uh, you don't need any help. And Kevin might have some trouble coming up being out-satirised by the actual main players. We're also going to go and uh, have a chat with Humphrey McQueen. It's his second part of a conversation about banks. Quite riveting stuff. Don't uh, go away. You're on Solidarity Breakfast on this. What is it? The uh, 19th of August.
5: Feel your spine tingle as the Millennium Chorus sings Haven, their 20th concert. Special guests include Jessica Hitchcock, Sally Ford, Lamine Sonko. In a new space, Plenary, Melbourne Convention Centre. On Sunday, August 20th at 2.30pm, go to boite.com.au or call 9417-1983. The Boite Millennium Chorus
2: a 3CR supporter.
0: Isn't that just fantastic? It's on tomorrow, so uh, if you haven't got a ticket, you can uh, go to uh, trybooking.com and uh, look up for a ticket at the... uh, Plenary Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre South Wharf. That's Sunday August the twentieth, two thirty p.m. It's just so sublime. It's got to be something. An anecdote, or uh, uh, not an anecdote, a, uh, a what? A little bit of medicine against uh, the dreadfulness that is. Potentially around you, lovely stuff. The boite. Uh, as I said, we're going to kick off with uh, a chat about the state of America, and uh, this particular interview with uh, Vince Emanuel was slightly before this dreadful attack. This where cars. It's a common theme lately. Cars being used as weapons. We, of course, just heard about Barcelona, which was uh, seen as a, as a terrorist attack uh, that's been um, accepted. You know, ISIS has said put its name to it. But, of course, the uh, white supremacist uh, organisation group person who uh, ran into the people at uh, Charlottesville uh, in the uh, United States earlier this week is uh, just uh, equally a uh, terrorist. Uh, It's a US backlash after the fascist mobilisation around the uh, uh, pulling down of Confederate uh, monuments across America. And it's quite interesting because these monuments, uh, almost uh, all of them are not monuments that have been put up at the time or the end of the Civil War, which is uh, around 1863, that's the sort of period we're talking about, three years of uh, uh, major battles for uh, the... um, Struggles for power, uh, gaining power over uh, the direction of the uh, imperialist America. At that time, uh, the North against the South. The South predominantly using the economic engine of slavery. The North using that as something that as a definer, a difference. There's probably a lot more to it uh, as people who know their history will probably be able to attest. But uh, it's one of the key issues that haven't been resolved in the American psyche. And uh, as it's been pointed out, that uh, the uh, monuments were not erected at that time. They were erected outside uh, later on at different times, outside the federal courts, or the courts in southern towns quite often, to show the uh, local population that uh, the federal government could not protect them. And uh, other issues, like uh, some of the monuments of two people who were architects and signers of a bill that was to make black Americans... Unable to be citizens of the country that they live in—it's that—that incredible. The battle for uh, your ability to be part of the society that you actually are part of, live in and born in. This is what this fight's about, and this is you know the whole business about uh, incre- the amount of lynchings, murders, murders. I mean, it's a nice name, lynching, isn't it, to describe what is wholesale murder. Because of a power struggle for the notion that uh, white supremacy, and it's pointed out that uh, this is what Trump Trump has uh, arrived on the scene uh, with uh, the Republican Party now being a nest. A place where white supremacy and uh, neo Nazi notions are allowed to have a public face. This is not to say that the whole of the Republican movement in America is actually uh, white supremacist or uh, um, neo Nazi, because actually some of the uh, Republicans have been busily trying to disassociate themselves. But of course, Trump at the head of this snake hasn't been able to do it at all because uh, he has no conviction. <laughs> he has no conviction. Anyway, it's a frightening period in America. And so when I was able to have a chat with uh, Vince, uh, it was a, a chinwag about uh, what's going on and also what could happen. And as I said, this is part one.
6: I agree with people like Andrew Basevich, uh, the foreign policy scholar from the university of Boston, he continually reminds people that there is more continuity than there are differences between administrations, particularly when it comes to us foreign policy. I guess the same in some ways could be said for domestic policy, but there are, I think some at least significant differences with domestic policy, for instance. But when it comes to foreign policy, it's very similar, regardless of who's in office. And so that's a long way of saying that I think a lot of this, the recent scandal with Scarmucci and the last press secretary, Sean Spicer, who was uh, released or who quit. I think it's important to keep in mind that we are facing institutions that are collapsing, that this isn't a matter of individuals, this isn't a matter of personalities, but that the very institutions that govern our lives and dictate a lot of what happens in the world are literally crumbling around us. And so therefore, you have things like Donald Trump as the president.
0: So, so would, you, would, would it be right to say that, uh, uh, I mean, well, put it this way, someone said to me that, uh, oh, it doesn't matter if Trump is in because the... Uh, Arrangements or the structures within the uh, American state are so uh, well structured that it will outlive the uh, a, a person like Trump. It's neither here nor out there. It will write itself. But in fact, it's uh, sm- it's uh, smoke and riv- uh, mirrors anyway, isn't it? Because it's like the theatre of control uh, is quite different from the expression of genuine power.
6: And I think it's really important to focus on where the real power lies, and I think that should direct people to take a more institutional analysis of what's happening. And I think if people do that, they'll come to the conclusion that there are many fundamental things that remain the same regardless of who is in power. That being said, I do think it it is important to recognize the differences, and so – with Trump, for instance, and I've noticed this just with our local organizing and efforts that are taking place in other parts of the country, it seems to me that it, it is better for a Democrat to be in office, not just for, say, political or policy reasons, but I think also for organizing. And I think right now what I see is a lot of liberal groups uh, small L liberal groups, so progressive groups I guess you could call them, who right now are organizing in a way that's simply trying to put out wildfires. Hmm. You know, So every day, every week, every couple weeks, the Trump administration does something or signs an executive order or proposes a piece of legislation that would be catastrophic to the vast majority of Americans. So right. all of the all of the nonsense that, you know, there were people during the election who had said, well, I don't know, you know, he's taking a more populist tone. Oh, I don't know. He seems to be maybe an isolationist. I mean, all of that veneer is gone. I mean, I think people realize that the one percent is as happy or happier than they've ever been with Trump in office you know, stock markets doing extremely well. The economy, at least if you examine it from the metrics that the mainstream economists use, of course, to them, it's doing very well. Uh, The U.S. has ramped up efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and elsewhere. And I think a recent report indicated that under Trump, just in the first six months of his administration, more civilians had been killed by drone strikes than in the last four years of Obama's administration. So there are, I guess, the sort of differences that people should care about if you really care about human life. I mean, to me, every... Single human life is important. And so it's not a moral choice for me, you know, when it comes to voting and these kinds of debates that people are having. I mean, I don't think, you know, if someone votes for a Democrat to me, that that's not like an indication of what kind of person they are. I just think that at this point, until people in the U.S. and activists in the U.S. and political organizations can create some sort of electoral alternative, I don't know what the electoral strategy is going to be to uh, defeat Trump or to defeat the GOP and to eventually replace the Democrats. And that that really Mm. seems, if we're going to get down to brass tacks, that sort of seems like the fundamental challenge. So so,
0: so what you're really saying is, what what am I right in saying is, basically it's business as usual. In fact, it's ramped up. And that uh, Trump's administration is really just... uh, diverting people's attention from uh, the overall actual power struggle, and so that uh, basically they're dis- is dissipating all the energies that people have got to actually uh, have a pro- progressive agenda. That would be what you're saying.
6: Yeah, I think that's part of what I'm saying. I, I think the other issue is just from a, a very practical sort of organizing standpoint for people who are on the ground trying to organize these movements and and these campaigns it it seems as though a lot of people are distracted by these sort of scandals and so forth and not paying attention to the sort of systemic institutional problems that we've faced for many many decades and the sort of institutions that eventually manifest you know in in the form of Donald Trump White House and yeah. and i think it's really important to recognize those things and and so the healthcare Uh, situation is a great example. I mean, I was a staunch critic of Hillary Clinton and have been um, have many personal reasons to be. And then, of course, just political, ideological, moral, ethical reasons. (laughs) But, you know, she was one of the senators who voted to send us to war in Iraq, uh, one of the worst uh, catastrophes, I would say, one of the worst crises, uh, war crimes and so forth since Vietnam. And and I think It's important, though, to recognize, you know, for instance, if if Clinton was elected uh, or or were to have been elected back in in November, would the first order of business have been to try and take away health care from 23 million Americans? The answer to that would be no. So for me, it's more of a matter of strategy and tactics than it is like this you know, going out to vote for some great moral reason. I don't know necessarily why I'm focusing so much on that, but I do, I find it interesting now in hindsight because there were so many people and I think all of us to some degree or another fell victim to the election cycle and the madness that is sort of within that, you know, which is nonstop media circus around the election for 18 months. And I think that drove all of us a little crazy as, as it should. Um, and so, I think one of the issues that we have to face as progressive left wing activists, however you want to identify yourself, those who are listening, is what kind of strategic decisions do we need to make uh, in order to move forward? For instance, I think we could have been doing many more interesting things if Clinton were were elected, not because of Clinton, but in spite of Clinton. I, I don't think. You know, right now we're in a position where we're just trying to protect people's health care and it's a health care. It puts us in this position of defending a health care program in Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, that did have some positive elements to it, but was also overwhelmingly sort of this corporate health care program. Well, I mean, I use Democrats as an example. I mean, it's like, OK, here's the Republicans. We all know how crazy they can be. But here's a Clinton, here's an Obama, here's a whoever, a Justin Trudeau in, in, in Canada, and, and here's as good as they get. So this is as good as you're going to get. Here's yeah. somebody who supports the fossil fuel industry. Here's somebody who continues to support uh, U.S. empire. Here's someone who doesn't support single-payer health care. And these are the limitations of having someone like this in office. And I think it's much more instructive, at least from my standpoint, in terms of trying to educate people and trying to organize people around these issues. I think it's much more instructive to have someone like a Democrat in office. And you're not constantly putting out wildfires. It gives us a chance, I think, to take a look at who's in power and to show people, well, hey, this is as good as it gets. This issue of being unable to provide people with an alternative to the neoliberal system, to me, seems like the fundamental issue.
0: You you need a revolution, but in lieu of a revolution –
6: yeah, well, <laughs> what that revolution looks like and how it takes form and so forth, that all uh, remains to be seen. But it, before that, I think that you have to start articulating what those things would look like. And that that we still aren't even to that stage. And I think as activists, as however people, again, identify themselves, I think it's really important that we start to have those conversations. And it's no coincidence to me that the overwhelming number of books and articles that are written, the overwhelming number of documentaries and and films that are made, uh, focus on what is wrong and focus on what is happening as opposed to what we could offer or what alternatives would look like or what alternative ideas are right now as they exist. And there's a lot of people out there talking about them, but there's not too many if you look at it in, as a ratio to sort of, you know, if you go through the left-wing websites and so forth, and you look at the number of articles that are written, you tell me how many out of 100 are going to offer something and how many out of those 100 are simply pointing out what's wrong. Yeah, agree. I, I, I would say that probably 99 to 1. Yep. Um, and, and I think that's a big issue. It reminds me of something I think much more fundamental that is wrong on the left, and, and that is that we have not offered alternative visions for people to tie into and to identify with and to say yes or even to encourage people. I don't think we want to go, pe- go to people and say, hey, this is our idea for the way society should be structured and this is just the way it is. What, what I think we should be doing, though, is encouraging people to start thinking about, talking about, writing about and creating things that would allow people to think about those alternatives and to contemplate the alternatives that people are already discussing.
0: Yeah, I think so too. People are feeling really frightened and and desperate and the powers that be are actually creating a world that actually is on par to an economics of the 18th century for the ordinary person. You know, more and more limited ways of actually getting food on the table, shelter. I mean, when I bring up $4 an hour internships, that should just turn your stomach. People should not be able to accept that but this is the world the new world that this power elite that's getting fatter and fatter are trying to say is the new norm or the old norm or whatever norm
6: i agree i mean there's no there's no debating anything that you're saying i think again for me the issue that i keep running into right now is well, what exactly and how well number 1 what do we want and number 2 how do mm-hmm. we plan on getting there and that's what i right. see right now is a lot of nostalgia for the past, and I think this was. How do I say this? Because I, as we've talked in the past, I think the Bernie Sanders campaign was very useful. In fact, many of the people I'm currently organizing with are people that I met through that campaign. Really bright young activists who are very serious about what they want to do. Yep. And I, so, in that way, I've always found it useful. Part of. The ish, part of the problem, though, with his campaign was a, a lack of understanding and a lack of criticism and analysis about U.S. empire. And I think part of – I don't know if you're familiar with Adam Curtis's documentaries at all. He made a lot of documentaries for the BBC. Mm-hmm. He's a uh, British filmmaker. His name's uh, Adam, A-D-A-M, C-U-R-T-I-S.
0: And what are the documentaries you're talking about?
6: A Century of Self. Mm-hmm. is a great one. Another great one is uh the trap. Mm-hmm. Uh, another great one would be hypernormalization, which is his latest one about Trump. Oh right. And okay. m- much more than much more than Trump, but nonetheless he it goes on and on. The Power of Nightmares is another great one that was about the Bush era, post 9/11 era. He uses all stock footage, and then he puts a soundtrack to it, and he narrates for the whole time. So they're usually broken up into one-hour segments, and usually they run anywhere from two to five hours.
0: So they're film essays, really.
6: Oh yes, it's the you'll Annie, you will be on YouTube for hours once you uh, (laughs) dig into that. Once you fall into that rabbit hole. But part of what Curtis talks about, and part of what Chomsky has talked about for a long time has been the power of propaganda and the power of media, advertising, marketing, and so forth. Mm. And so a lot of what Curtis is talking about is Edward Bernays, uh, Sigmund Freud's nephew, and really the godfather of the modern marketing and advertising industry. Mm. And, And how that, because people weren't going to stand for authoritarian rule, because people had already pushed society in a certain direction, they weren't going to stand for Uh, certain forms of traditional control that, say, existed at one time. And so then the propaganda and the the mechanisms of power have to become more sophisticated, more complex. And what this has led to by the 1970s is this new neoliberal system, as you know, Mm. in this post-1968 generation – where I think a lot of people did lose hope. I think a lot of people did become cynical, and I think a lot of people did actually buy into the system. I you know, also sort of-
0: think that um, uh, people underestimate the actual effect of those two bombs, it, and we're coming to the anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, that, that was just a devastating uh, way of looking at uh, human potential.
6: Well, the potential to, as we now know, uh, quite literally end the species. And I think it it sounds amazing for people to hear that. But I think those are the sort of things we need to think about, reflect on, uh, take a step back and really put ourselves in the proper context. And that context is a species That is facing extermination by the end of this century. Some people argue much sooner if we don't radically change society. And there has been no previous generation of people at any time other than those who were religious and believed that Armageddon was coming, but irrationally and illogically so we are the first generation, so I will cut us some slack here, <laughs> uh, who's ever had to face the prospect of the entire species going extinct. And this, I don't blame people. You know, this is the other thing I've been hearing a lot of. Um, so I'm just going to like sort of riff on some of these things I've been thinking about. But, you know, I'm thinking about a lot of people I'm I'm talking to lately who are, you know, oh, everything's screwed. You know, we what are we going to do? We're already screwed. There's nothing we can do. The planet's a mess. We're we're all going to die. It's going to be terrible. You know, it's sort of that that sort of thing. Like people have already given up very yeah, cynical, yeah. very ni- mm. nihilistic. Or I, there's people here, especially in the United States, I think with this lingering frontiersman mentality <laughs> that still persists in our society and also because. People have been conditioned in many ways to be hyper individualistic and also, I think, quite violent and, and militaristic in terms of our worship of guns and, and, and military and so forth, the police. Yes. But, you know, there's also people in the in the U.S. context who are sort of f- fantasizing about these things, you know, like, oh, this is, you know, I'll finally get to use my AK-47, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. when things collapse I, I, I and, get and that. that sort of thing. And and then I think one of the other responses is is that people just simply shut off. I have many family members and and old friends and acquaintances who simply cannot or will not. I don't think they can't, but I think that they're unwilling to actually deal with reality. And so for them, it's easier to just shut off and sort of insulate themselves in a suburban lifestyle of you know, go to work, kids go to school, you go to soccer games on the weekends and all of that, and you just kind of tune out for as long as you could tune out or for as long as you can maintain that lifestyle. And, and, you know, those are the kind of responses that I'm seeing from a lot of people. And it's, it worries me that people have given up, I think so quickly is what I've seen from a lot of different groups and individuals who I met during the Bernie campaign. And, you know, who are just becoming politically active for the first time and, and just trying to heed them some warnings, you know, I mean, I, I know how I was when I first got involved. But, you know, I think people should have expected the DNC and the mainstream media to screw Bernie Sanders and to support Clinton. And I think people once Trump was elected, even if people didn't think he had a chance, if 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 you even had it in your head that, yeah, he does kind of have a chance you should, you know, I think people should have responded in a more mature manner. And, and you see immediately following Trump's election, millions of people in the streets. I don't know where those millions of people are. I don't know where the pink hat brigade of women who are opposed to, to Trump. I don't know where they've gone. There are some, to be fair, there are some who have remained involved. But by no means have the vast majority of those people remained involved Uh, On any significant level since those massive protests uh, when Trump was inaugurated and since the massive protests at the airports when he first announced his executive order uh, banning certain certain people from uh, traveling to the United States. And so I I think that's really important to point out that I don't know how much of that is a lack of uh, proper political infrastructure to keep people engaged. I do think that's part of it. I also think a big part of it is this sort of short term thinking that I think is that pervades this society. And I also think it's this sort of instant gratification that we have come to be so accustomed to this idea yeah. that if we just do a few things, we're going to get rid of Trump. And well, then what about Pence? You know, <laughs> what yeah. about? OK, so we get rid of Pence and then it's Paul Ryan. OK, so what about Paul Ryan? I mean, And that goes back to what I had originally said at the beginning of our conversation, which is we can continue to replace these individuals with as many nice individuals as we can. But until we build political infrastructures and alternatives and institutions and a culture that I think uh, engenders a sense of emancipatory politics and to build new alternatives, cultural alternatives, social alternatives, economic alternatives, until that happens and until we start going after the real – the structures that are in play. Uh, I could see people uh, sort of continually getting more and more cynical uh, as time goes on because I think the more they hinge their hopes on certain individuals or certain political parties, I just think the more and more cynical they'll become because that, that's a losing long-term strategy.
2: From the poplar tree The crows to pluck for the rain together for the wind to suck for the sun to rat for the tree to dry Is a strange and bitter cry.
3: I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR.
0: You are listening to 3CR. That's uh, Solidarity Breakfast with... Ooh. We have to get rid of that. She seems to have disappeared. We might have to go somewhere else. We were going to effortlessly go from uh, Vince Emmanuel to our next speaker, which is Lou Wheeler on a more local subject, uh, which is the cost of living. Uh, we were just listening to Vince Emanuel uh, from America talking about the state of things and, of course, the immortal Absolutely immortal song, uh, Strange Fruit from Billie Holiday, talking about the lynching uh, culture in America during the 20s, 30s and 40s, 50s. And uh, uh, the uh, that was a band song and uh, it's a riveting song. Uh, also, Chance for Black Lives Matter, that was from the Marxist Conference uh, 2017. Uh, anyway, we will slip over to uh, something else before we find out what's happened to our friend Lou.
5: The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network presents War, Peace and Independence Keep Australia Out of US Wars Amidst an escalating threat of another major war breaking out this timely conference will be held in Melbourne from the 8th to the 10th of September The conference will address the struggle against US bases drone warfare, peace as union business US political and military influence and much more For details and bookings head to ipan.org.au or go to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network Facebook page, a three CR supporter.
1: I do not accept that there is
4: underlying racism in this country. I have always taken a more optimistic view of the character of the struggle. <laughs>
3: you to wear the red, white, and blue, so then cross car stickers and tattoo, all the things that make you true blue, Ozzy, Ozzy, Oi Oi, ready to stamp you, but we are kind of classic, meaning we don't reveal your icons, like Walsing, we'll Matilda, Nick Kelly, or any of your lexicons, and you beat up on Muslims and Indians, cause they don't share the same patriotism, I will get patriotic when we stop our idiotic Commotion For meat pies, BBs, Vegemite, and Holdings Man, our culture is based on being a bogan Face up to the facts stubby's thongs, and poor cats Are our artifacts along with Paul Hogan Throw another shrimp in the bar, they might Celebrate such a day when our people didn't even get a say until 1967 when we were considered citizens. And before that, we were on the floor and fauna list. Uh, let me tell ya. The 26th of January celebrates the arrival of the first fleet. But ain't this absolute complete?
0: G'day, is that you, Lou?
3: Uh, yes, hi
0: Annie. <laughs> A happy happy outcome, yes. Now we're talking to Lou Wheeler on Solidarity Breakfast here. There you go for pensioners. Now we're talking about cost of living, aren't we?
5: We are, yes. And uh, unfortunately it's uh, driving people totally to the wall. We, um, we've just, you know, in the last week had uh, the power bill shock. Okay. And uh, the uh, health, energy and education are the three... Uh, really big uh, killers and um, people are now finding that uh, they're falling, toppling into poverty because there's just one killer bill too many.
0: Yeah, now it's interesting, uh, isn't it too, that uh, the obsession with uh, trimming off uh, or what's called trimming off the uh, budget deficit uh, is actually uh, they're pruning away people's actual ability to live a, a reasonable life, aren't they?
5: Oh. ability to live any life basically that's exactly right, but I mean people are now just living in you absolutely grinding poverty. One in ten people don't know where their next meal is coming from um and you go this is um you know where are we taking ourselves <laughs> basically well where is the government taking it and uh yes uh the trickle down effect is um being shown to be what it is. <laughs>
0: It's pretty laughable.
5: It's a total failure. Now, can you tell us a
0: little bit about the National Partnership Agreement that's just been axed, or is uh, they're thinking of axing?
5: Oh well, that uh, that was axed in uh, 2014. It was um, a a national agreement between the federal government and the states and territories to for the state uh, for the feds to. Provide uh, Commonwealth monies towards the cost of uh, state based uh, concession programs, and in uh, the then Abbott government, in its wisdom, uh, had decided to cut it. And they, uh, without notice, and they axed it two years ahead of the agreement being, uh, you know, exp- uh, intending to be in- uh, expired. Um, and in Victoria...
0: The, what did that it, mean to people?
5: Well, what it what it meant was um, in terms of uh, the states losing $80 million a year towards their concessions for people on um, energy costs, motor vehicle registration, public um, transport, travel and, um, $80 million a year is a lot. So that the state government in Victoria, for instance, had to decide whether they were going to reduce or cut or, um, you know, make up the, the difference. And of course, uh, because it, and then it was, um, an election year, the then Napthine government actually kept it going for one year. But after that, and already the, um, the real value of concessions in Victoria had been dropping anyhow. But, after that, then the Andrews government came in and um, by uh, 16, uh, 15 sixteen budget, then um, the concession system was um, cut by eighty two million dollars, and that 's huge. I mean you're looking at um, people you know losing five or ten dollars um, a week. You know, So um, we're talking
0: municipal rates, energy, yeah. motor vehicle registration, public transport rebates for pensioners on yeah, concession cards? Right.
5: Yeah, that's right. Year-round concessions on energy now. Um, and um, yes, yeah, so it's a lot of money. If you haven't got any money and you're losing, um, you know, like 17.5%, and then they cut... Um, off that 17.5% because of the uh, then called uh, Clear Energy Supplement. They then took away the 10% that people got for the Clean Energy Supplement And and that amounted to something like, from memory, about $33 a year. But if you don't have any money, then $33 a year... Uh, is a lot of money. Now, it's interesting,
0: Lou, because the federal government is trying to run this line that, uh, oh, they didn't have any, uh, uh, didn't know that the energy bills were going to cost so much and that gas was going to triple and all this sort of stuff. But they're being ingenuous, aren't they? Because
5: They certainly are. Well, I mean, we've, uh, you know, some of us actually know that privatisation doesn't work. It's been a screaming failure. And the power one, I mean, that's just the classic example. Kennett privatised the State Electricity Commission in the early 90s, you know, in tranches. And um, and since then, instead of getting the lower prices and, you know, more informed choice, <laughs> we have huge inefficiencies and skyrocketing prices. I mean, what clearer example do you need of privatisation failure? Yeah, um, Publ- and- uh,
0: publi- publicity-led... Uh uh, stealing from uh, the public because in actual fact what it means you're paying for it twice.
5: Oh absolutely and it means massive profits <laughs> for those um, you know with the deep pockets. The uh, It's just amazing and yet the Turnbull coalition government of course is completely uh, wedded to the idea of further privatisation deregulation um, and of course by while ever you do that they're cutting taxes which we know that's exactly what they're doing um so it's a pretty desperate situation and I think it we must begin to say no we're not going to put up with this anymore we want change that actually helps people it is compassionate the other thing that is so um you know ghastly about this government is the way in which they punish and tackle the poor Blame the poor for the structural systemic problems and um, absolutely hound them. And uh, with so more and more punitive treatment of people who were receiving income support. Um, the, um, the auditors worked out, that it was a figure I was totally astounded about, um, that in, um, in the year 14-15, um, people waited on, to, to phone Centrelink the equivalent of 143 years in one year, dangling off the phone. Now, this is when you have to report to get your payment, I mean, it just is. So astounding. what they've done is,
0: it's a catch twenty two. They've created a system that uh, <laughs> is punitive. They've said you've got to do something, but it's impossible for you to actually achieve what they're asking you to achieve.
5: Exactly right, and they they tell you that there's a on average there's a fourteen minute um, wait on the phone. Well, I had occasion to ring Centrelink the other day, and I timed it, and I was on the phone for forty minutes.
0: Yeah. So I mean, it's you know. So what you're really saying is that the only people who are making money out of this are the people uh, who run mobile phones.
5: Yeah, that's on that one. That's exactly (laughs) right. And of course, if you're poor and you can't afford a phone, um, what do you do? Well, you walk. You walk to the your nearest Central Link office and tell that to people in the regions. I mean, it it really is. It's it's quite. just so serious, and on the other hand, we've oh, we've got wages at um, the lowest growth rate at, at 1.5 since the Second World War, with, with you know consumer price index running at 1.9. How does that work? Well it's fascinating
0: isn't it because it's quite clear that there is a tier, there's a whole layer of society here in Australia who are actually doing quite well because where I live oh, yes. I look in the doors of places that are being actively renovated and we're talking about large houses now if you're able to renovate that means that you've got a certain amount of capital doesn't it because this is just domestic Refurbishments and uh, restructuring. Now, I look at that and I think, you know, like this is large amounts of personal capital. And then there are other people who can't actually even, uh, they have to decide if they're going to eat three meals a day.
5: Well, not three, one.
0: Well, that's right. Sorry, I was being. You know,
5: there's a uh, um, hundred and thirty four thousand people, of whom thirty nine thousand are children, are fed um, by uh, each month with the uh, Victorian Food Bank. Yes, that's, that's how right. many people they feed in Victoria. In Victoria alone, it, I mean, it really is at crisis level and for some reason our blinkers are on and we're not seeing it and yet how you can't see the homeless on the street, I do not know. Well, you yeah, know, it's um, interesting
0: because it's structural, isn't it? Because, I mean, yes. I, I, I mean people say, oh, you know, that charity has got much more to do with the people who are giving the charity than the people receiving it because actually what it really means is that it gives you a warm glow if you're the person giving out charity, but you wouldn't want to be the one receiving it because, you know, otherwise you wouldn't be a special person who can confer your special gifts to a, a, a needy individual. It's actually, it says that uh, you've, you've created a, a system that requires ch- uh, strat- uh, charity uh, and you are disempowering a whole section of the community for the benefit of someone else's warm glow.
5: That's right. Well, it, I mean, we—it's—it's it's the shift, isn't it, towards philanthropy instead of the welfare state.
0: Well, it's disgusting.
5: Yeah. Yes, it is. It totally. disgusts me. And now we have um, the Turnbull government raising, um, you know, the Medicare levy, levy again from 0.5 to two point five. To help fund, um, you know, the uh, the National Disability Insurance Scheme. What, so, what going actually to take means it from one what, group of poor, <laughs>
0: yeah, to another. What what it really means is we can't afford this federal government, and we can't afford this ideology, this neoliberal ideology. It's too no, expensive.
5: What we have to do is uh, start letting people know that it's um, failed, and to start talking about what is the alternative as your uh, previous guest talked about. And it's absolutely right. So, uh, you know, what does a compassionate and just society look like? And how do we get there? And what are the values that we're going to um, believe in? And... uh Prosecute. It's, um, yeah, just extraordinary. I mean, it's but, this
0: idea that people take upon themselves the guilt of their own, fa- uh, you know, economic failure. But when you've got a system that is uh, prepared to pay young people $4 an hour as retail assistants and call it an internship and that you're being innovative, you've got to say you're, it sucks.
5: Well, that's right. And if uh, you... <laughs> You think you can't... You're not going to be surprised any longer by what this government does and then the next thing happens and you're surprised all over again, although I suppose at this stage one shouldn't be. But, yes, $4 an hour um, and, what is it, 33% of the minimum wage or something. It's... um, I mean, it's totally extraordinary. And you've got, um, you know, something like 66,000 Victorians skip having radiology scans... Um, because they can't afford they can't afford the out of pocket expenses, and this is um, at a time when you know we're being told, promoted on the one hand, you must you know get there early because detection you know is your best cure, um, and yet people can't afford it. And at the same time, we're blaming people for their own poverty. Um, we're saying you are either criminals, you are demons, you're drunks, you're layabouts, you're. Um, Late, too lazy to work, or you're a job snob. That's another one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so we're completely uh, demonising and criminalising the poor, so that there is no th- sympathy. People can then go, "Oh, yes, of course, it's their own fault. It's their own behaviour that has led them to this situation." Yeah, Which yeah. Course, I think hmm.
0: I think the uh, microscope should be, go a li- on to the boss class and the financial classes a little bit more. People should stop being so happy to. Self-flagellate, you know.
5: Yes, it's in, it's time, and uh, we've That's got... a slogan.
0: It's time.
5: <laughs> <laughs> we have have to... we heard
0: that before? <laughs> yeah. We'll have to leave it there, Lou. Yeah,
5: all right, Daddy. Thanks Good for checking. Bye.
0: Bye.
3: Hi, Marian Pedersen. You're listening to Three CR. A
4: week solidarity, bricky team listener. When. I'll attempt to push on, listener, despite the potential tragedy, the sense of loss, the mourning, but, but forgive me if I break down and, and can't continue, can't go on. The, the tragedy for a satirist that we may lose hayseed and Sheepshit party supremo and deputy big supremo. Barnacle, a satirical mainstay, and while Big Supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull said ignorance was no excuse, no defence, when he thought he was getting rid of a couple of long-haired greenies, ignorance is a high court defence. The court will recognise, Malcolm assured their honours, when it came to his old King Coal Minister, Matt Canna, fan of coal, and Well, in Barnacle's case, we'd have to agree ignorance is a clear excuse, as Malcolm said. If ignorance is an excuse, Barnacle is the ideal case study. On the other hand, if ignorance is an excuse, Barnacle's life would be one big excuse. So all you high court conservatives, upholders of capitalist law, please, please do the right thing. Then again, Barnacles next in line, Fiona Smash Greenies is also heading to the High Court. (laughs) Who's number three? There could be no one left soon. Sorry, left will insult them when they've got enough worries on their plate at the moment. No one remaining soon. And they all say it has something to do with dissent, which at least shows they are being realistic about where the government's heading. But what have things come to when in the same week, former US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo, warmonger and prize moron, George W. Bash the Workers, and his warmonger dad, and our very own attorney, General George Brandy's brain, look good, which shows the vagaries of relativities, which in turn says heaps about current U.S.R. big supremo Donald Trample the poor and our very own that appalling Hoonson who wore what I think must be called a bonkers into Parliament because someone said she's gone bonkers and she said she wants to ban bonkers but appalling it's not that easy you can't legislate away being bonkers doing the right thing the right right far right thing her co-conspirator in making the Georges look good well better goods going too far, Donald trample the poor, condemning violent, long-haired, commie, greenie, lefty, liberal. Is there a more pejorative term in the US of than liberal? Rightfully pejorative. Lefty liberal protesters provoking the poor white supremacist fascist who just want to uphold a few cherished US of values like white supremacism, fascism, slavery, that sort of thing. Well, they've got wage slavery and how, but why not go back a step? Sensible slogans like, White lives matter, and if you say otherwise... See, just bringing a bit of balance into the debate, what gives blacks the exclusive right to that ground? Other than they're the ones the... Sorry, the cops keep shooting. The white supremacist fascists would not have to carry all those weapons. That arsenal including their cars, if the violent lefties extremists did not provoke them. Bad, very bad. It's a free country. It's the land of the free. And they have every right to express their point of view without the violence of commies, of namby-pamby liberals. Bad, very bad. And, he added proudly, we are proud that they express their love of the U.S. of God bless America by exercising their constitutional right to bear arms, the second greatest freedom of all. Very good, very good. White supremacists, fascists, love them or hate them, you gotta admire them for that, for upholding the Constitution. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, what's the first greatest freedom? Capital, the freedom of capital very very good fantastic with that Donald also said he was opposed to violence and on a different matter very bad I want evil bad Venezuela to respect that freedom of capital or they will feel the full force of the most powerful nation in the world very good very very good and I warn evil North Korea that unless it abandons its nuclear program, we will have to nuke it. Fire and fury, fire and fury, very good, very good. Uh, so you will use nuclear warfare to protect the world from nuclear warfare. We love peace, fantastic, fantastic. Fantastic. Donald does use fantastic quite a lot, and we suppose that's because it's the sort of world he lives in. Before we move on, could anyone explain how driving your car at high speed into a crowd of people because they hold different views qualifies as second-degree murder, kind of like manslaughter under our law? What would he have had to do to cop first-degree murder? While on great minds, back to Barnacle mentioned two weeks ago how poor Barnacle got sprung on a secret recording boasting how he extracted water from the environment portfolio and how he would sink the greenies and all that although whether there will be enough water to sink them in remains a moot point. Also mentioned the irrigation lobbyist he appointed to the Murray-Darling Basin Authority got sprung on that four corners secret recording agreeing it would be fabulous to get her hands on leaked documents to help irrig- Irrigators extract a little more water than even the plan allows, which she, as an irrigation lobbyist, thinks should sink anyway. Again, if there's any water left to sink in, well, the lobbyist and her father have been described as hayseed and sheepshit party royalty. Not not following that, or now following that. Remember. Barnacle recommended her appointment in the most glowing of terms, the party leader recommending anti-water plan activists labelled party royalty. Then, when the proverbial hit the fan, ever-loyal Barnacle declared he had never, never had a conversation with her. She'll have to speak for herself. Party leader, party royalty, recommended in glowing terms, never had a conversation with her, never. Never. And if he wasn't a highly respected politician, well, possibly temporary politician, highly respected, we'd have to doubt his word. But of course, he is and we don't. Barnacle last seen leaping out, pulling the parachute cord, leaving her to go down with... Thank goodness we have no white supremacist fascists here, and therefore how divisive that Yarra Council should introduce black supremacism, wiping out True Blue Aussie Day. Poor Arthur Phillip would be turning in his grave. And it took about two and a half minutes for those who hate division to be up in verbal arms, if that not be some sort of mixed metaphor or mixed analogy, or even if it is, they have no right to naturalise people just as well, because they're more likely than not to naturalise no proper papers, bloody queue jumping illegal boat people. And the Lord Rupert of whopping usual suspect columnist with the bolt through the head, said the council was dividing the community on the Specious grounds that our Great National Invasion Day, sorry, Great National Day, divided some people, but only because those some people insist on claiming falsely that His Most Gracious Majesty settling and civilising a terra nullius country was some sort of invasion. For goodness sake, can't these anti-truble-wasi disruptors get the definition of terra nullius into their heads, recognise they weren't even here? didn't exist and don't exist no longer existing and in the apropos of nothing department report this week that the world's oldest man had died lost his title so to speak but the report said the world's oldest living man surely the living bit is redundant he wouldn't be the world's oldest dead man would he that great defender of the struggler, Lord Rupert of Wapping, anxious to keep lobster with a mobster off the front page, hit us with a frightening, whopping sin, P1, in his defence of the strugglers. Tax Bill! Screaming at us. Bill being Socialist Party supremo and frighteningly would-be big supremo, little Billy Shorten ambition. Revealed the true cost of Labour's tax grab. Treasurer warns voters would be slugged $100 billion. We'll all be ruined. Well, reading on, the stragglers will all be ruined if they are business people strugglers, uh, strugglers, landlord strugglers using negative gearing to avoid or minimise their taxes, strugglers with a family trust to avoid or, again, sorry, minimise their taxes, or struggle on the top marginal tax rate or other strugglers will just keep struggling as normal. And on their behalf, Lord Rupert is conducting a campaign over families facing exorbitant utility bills, having congratulated then-Big Supremo Jeff Mouth when he gave the inefficient, bloated hand of the public purse power utilities to the super-efficient lean-mean private sector, agreeing our bills would sink to almost zero. Without explaining how that would concur with the lean mean, especially the mean bit of the company's need to make a nice little killing from bringing us all that efficiency. Anyway, Lord Rupert has worked out it didn't quite pan out that way. It's the customers who have sunk. But he's offering the solution. Change our company. Find a new super-efficient supplier to rip us off. And very, very importantly, turn off the lights when we leave the room. But Lord Rupert isn't alone defending the strugglers battling to meet the utility bills, or more correctly, not to meet. Big Supremo Malcolm and Fossils Minister Josh fryden Icebergs drag the big utility supremos to Canberra and looks tough, laying down the the not-the-law, which is why they can't do anything about it other than beg. Please, please, could you stop ripping off quite so blatantly? It's not helping. Look, look, we understand your position, but... And thus, the big utility supremos agreed they'd provide more details to their victims or customers. We agree to explain in more detail how we're ripping them off, they assured Malcolm and Josh. Uh, Thank you, we'd appreciate that. Finally... Notice Barnacle was there as well. His contribution would have been invaluable. Please, please, Your Honours, don't take him away. Good morning. This is Iri Lekker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3CR.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks.
0: You are on Solidarity Breakfast and this is a perfect segue, isn't it, Humphrey?
1: It is indeed, yes. (laughs) Into our old friends, the banks.
0: That's right.
1: We've got to have another look at them. Two weeks ago, we had a look at what Mark's Capital um, said about um, how the banks were an essential part of the capitalist system. You can't have one without the other. And this time, however, I want to look at a bit more of what the the real existing banks are up to. And I thought we'd start with the central banks um, and then go on to look at some of the commercial corporates and how the two things are getting tied up. So all of this, of course, is leading towards uh, two weeks' time when it's party time. Yes. 150th anniversary of Das Kapital. Uh, But we'll save that up for another two weeks or so. Cool. So on we go and have a look at what the central banks have been up to. now. Since 2007, 2008, there's been what becoming coming to call, I think, more accurately than people uh, called the GFC or the, or the Great Financial Crisis, the Global Financial Crisis.
0: They always people like a found, few letters.
1: Well, I like that. And financial, of course, focuses on a very narrow area of what was going on. The whole economy is then kind of protected because you're thinking, oh, no, it's only the financial bit... Uh, something went wrong. And they couldn't really
0: go that far and say the great rip-off.
1: Well, they couldn't do that. (laughs) And what they're now talking about, though, the phrase is beginning to appear more often, the great recession. It's still going on. And that's what I want to start by having uh, something to say about what the central banks have been up to in this. Now, Things aren't as bad as they were around 2009, 2010, uh, when there was real panic as to what they were going to have to do. But, and they were pumping out huge amounts of money then just to keep the thing upright.
0: So what you're saying well, is the governments were pumping out money to well, keep the these banks going? Well, the were
1: doing it, yeah. yeah. You know, in one way or another. I mean, we saw it here. You know, I mean, As an old-age pensioner, I think they put $1,000 in my bank account. Um, and mm. then, there was the, then there were the pink bats and the putting iron fences around all the schools and calling it an education revolution.
0: However, uh, this was more effective in Australia because instead of going for the trickle-down effect, they went for the trickle-up effect.
1: Well, we did a bit more of that, although I'm not going to get into this, but I think it's true that if you were on a new start allowance, you didn't get a brass Yeah, <laughs> no,
0: That's right.
1: Um, so anyway, but on we pushed. Now, what's happening now? Well, they're still pumping out money. They're pumping it out at the rate of about 1.2 trillion dollars a year. Oh. Now, trillions, I think, have 12 noughts, but it's a lot of money.
0: Are you talking about the Americans, or or no, is that just world. in general? Sorry, ah.
1: no, no, this is the whole world getting 1.2. Yeah, right. A trillion dollars coming out every year.
0: 12 now, noughts, you say?
1: Yeah, and you've got to think about well, what does that mean in real terms? Well, <laughs> it's the equivalent of the Australian economy. So it'd be like either taking in or putting out the Australian economy, or the other way of looking at it, it's two percent of the global economy. Right. So every year um, they keep pumping out another two percent of the of the global economy just to keep the thing kind of afloat. Um, and you know, I mean, you could say if you look at global, the whole of the global growth rate it is also 2%. I mean, some of them are you know, down to zero and some of them are up to four or something. But, so what know, are you overall, saying it's static? Well, if, I mean, it's not quite a zero-sum game. It's not. A, you know, I mean, you simply can't take it out of one end and put it in the other. You don't, you know, it's, a, it's a kind of system of flows. Uh,
0: but <laughs> you know, it, it sounds it, like food going in and poo coming out.
1: Yeah, but you know, I mean, if you think of it in those terms roughly, mm. you get a sense that if they stop doing all of this, Would there be any growth at all? Certainly there would be a lot of economies would be in very, very serious problems indeed. So the Great Recession has been kept from turning into something much more disastrous for them. Now, another way of trying to understand what's been going on is if we look at a particular economy. And Sweden has been one of the standouts. It's got a growth rate of above 3% which is sort of the envy of, of any, any advanced economy anywhere. Mm. Indeed, it's more than three times what the entirety of the European Union is uh, able to turn in.
0: How have they been doing that?
1: Wow, well, they've been doing it by pumping out money. <laughs> they've pumped out $1.7 now, that's, you know, I mean, 1.7 billion is a... a poor old called didn't understand this, the difference between billions and millions and trillions. Um, but there is a difference. But for Sweden, it is a huge amount of money, um, and they intend to keep on doing it. And they're going to pump out another 1.7 billion in the next six months.
0: Does that mean that they're making a profit on their pumping in of money?
1: Well, the banks, the central banks fund themselves sometimes by how they do this. Mm. Um, but it's really, in those cases like Australia and things, the central banks are part of the government. So it's just a way of recycling money.
0: So it's the, like a gear.
1: Through, oh, the, the, public ed, the, the public expenditure system.
0: So it's a gear, like if it was a motor, it would be a gear. In...
1: Uh, it's certainly that. Well, oh. it, Well, it's an accelerator.
0: All oh, right, and yeah, I mean, okay. you know,
1: or, or it can be a break. I mean, you know I mean in the past, the central banks have put their foot on the brake in order to slow inflation down and things. the moment they're trying to get inflation up to two percent. Um, now let's have a look at what's going on in the United Mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the Federal Reserve has stopped pumping out as much money as it used to in the days of the quantitative easings. And the US growth um, is pretty, you know, I mean, you'd have to say now in global terms, it's pretty respectable as to, as to, you know, as to where they are. Uh, inflation there is still under the 2% level and the Federal Reserve is, you know, concerned about this. But, you know, all, all up, things aren't going too badly comparatively in the United States. Uh, however, they've still got a couple of real world stress tests. Um the central banks engage in what are called imaginative stress tests <laughs> they look at well what would happen if and say what's the corporate um, how, how, how would the corporate banks be able to survive this? But there are real-world stress tests, which are much more important if they actually <laughs> well, <of> ever, <laughs> if they, if they ever come through. Yeah. And People now, might like fed- to live
0: in the virtual world, but actually <laughs> yeah, something well, else will hit them in the head.
1: It doesn't let them in, no. Um, the Federal Reserve's put up the interest rates three times in the last seven months, and it's hinting that it's going to do a bit more of that. But they've still only got the interest rate up to one point five percent. Okay. Uh, now this, you know, is a sign that they've been able to get, you know, I say, quite a bit of respectable growth going.
0: Because this one point two percent is what they make. That that's the margin of of uh, profit, isn't it? For them. Well, if they're lucky, if they're lucky, yeah. You know,
1: I mean, we'll we'll get to the problems that they're having at the moment oh, before the end of it. It's a, you know, as to why they're engaging in so many other scum scumbaggeries uh, in order to make any kind of profit. But there's a couple of problems for them. Until last year, the corporates and the consumers were in effect being paid to borrow money. And that, in many parts of the world, is still the case. If you've got zero interest rates or minus zero interest rates rates they have in Sweden, then you're effectively being paid to go and borrow money. Um, Now, I can't believe it either,
2: um,
1: (laughs) but it's been going on. Um, Now, for as long as the US was getting what you could call money for jam, they are prepared to spend. Yep. What we're not too sure about is if interest rates get closer to the levels that used to be considered what was normal, will the spending begin to retract? It hasn't on these three increases in the last seven months. But how much more can the spending and the investment be actually be able to absorb? At the moment, it's kind of suspended because they're waiting for the big tax cuts that Donald Trump's has um, threatened or, you know, the, the economy, you know, threatened the poor with, but um, is a kind of real promise dangling in front of the big corporates. So, uh, so all these
0: banks, like all this money from a big point of view, like money is actually sort of notional in a sense. Is it notional or is it, compa- is it actually connected to value? And is it just about their livelihoods and the, and the maintenance of the capitalist system?
1: Well, it's a combination. I mean, most of the money in the share market. Um, well, I mean, lots of the money in the share market is including notional. Uh, I mean, these figures as to, you know, as to as to what the share market's worth. I mean, a great deal of that. But of course, there is a big real economy out there. You know, the United States is huge in terms of the real things that it makes, and there's real money involved in that. And every time somebody buys and sells, real money and real goods are shifted around the place. Uh, so, you yeah, know. I mean, All of the the financial sector isn't entirely fictional, Uh, but there is a large part of it that uh, can certainly be described as fictitious capital.
0: So it relies on confidence?
1: Oh, it certainly relies on that, Um, and on the promise of, of, of of the good times to come. Is what they're hoping for at the moment. Is that where so, the taxes,
0: are, you know, tax cuts are all about? Is that what they, you know, this mantra that the neoliberal governments around the world, oh, we're going to cut your corporate taxes. Is yeah, that what it's all about?
1: Well, it's, well, yeah, and the promise is then, then if you cut their taxes, then they will invest more. Oh yeah, yeah and right, right. create jobs, but I yeah. mean,
0: we all the kind know the that's other a lie. Issue
1: that we need to drive on. So <laughs>
0: no,
1: there's a second danger. Uh, the U.S. interest rates, Uh, if you put them up above those in Europe and Japan, which is where they are already, those higher earnings, I mean, if you've got money in the world and you can invest it then in these financial institutions in the U.S., you'll get a slightly higher rate of return on your money. And what that does, the arrival of that money puts an upward pressure on the value of the U.S. currency. I was
0: going to say, and you're also tied to the American system entirely.
1: Well, you you are that, but certainly. But the higher exchange rate in turn makes it cheaper to import things and makes it more expensive to export. Yes, so which Australia it, was caught it, in. It, it, it's really the reverse of having a kind of tariff system. Yes. Um, instead of protecting your industries, if the exchange uh, rate yeah. runs against you, and that's what's been happening to Australia in the last That's year, right. I mean, Years now, but it certainly happened again in the last few weeks again, and they're concerned about that.
0: So, so the American, the so having Trump saying he's going to improve their employment situation locally, his pants are on fire.
1: Well, he can't do both of <laughs> these. Uh, yeah, right. yeah, indeed. So I mean, that's one of the other problems. Now we need to push on, although we started early because we. You know, yeah, we're yeah. Sorry, but, I'll but, shut yeah, up. Get okay, on with it. Now, um, the other problem they face is that they are the Federal Reserve is saying it's going to sell off some of the bonds, the government bonds that it bought, um, um, and yeah, you know, which is how it engaged in in pumping money out into the system. I mean, a lot of the quantitative easing was that th- was that they were buying this up, which it effectively was was kind of feeding money into the entire financial system. Now, the last time we had something called a taper tantrum, in 2013, the then head of the Federal Reserve said they were going to stop buying any of these government bonds. And immediately, the whole bond market and the share market went into a state of panic, and the Federal Reserve said, oh, no, 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 we we, we will actually continue to do it. Well, they have now stopped doing it, But now they're going to go into reverse. They're going to start selling these again. And they're nervous about what effect that's likely to have. Now, we can't go into what the bond market is today. And I've been thinking for some months that we really do need to have a session where we look at the bond market. Because if the share market is a bit of a puzzle to people, despite the fact that it's on the news every 15 minutes, um, the bond market... I think people do, many people don't even know it exists. And no, it's no, it's all, important. And they only do but, their
0: share market stuff on the news to prove that it's important.
1: Oh, well, it's like the weather. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's like the weather.
1: It, it is part of the natural world. Um, yeah, you know, so we bre- you bre- know, live and breathe it. all the time. Yeah. But sometime between now and Christmas... I will pluck up my courage and see if I can explain, A, to myself and B, to everybody else what the bond market is.
0: Yeah, but now you, today uh, you want to have a look at, care, uh, look at what's going on in around the world. So let's have a look at the European like, Central Bank.
1: Well, let's have a look at what – well, they're pumping out money too. I mean, they didn't do it for a while. You know, a lot of them fell into the austerity pattern. But that didn't work. In fact, it went into reverse. And they're now the European Union, the European Central Bank, having screwed the Greeks and a couple of the others, have now decided that they have to pump money into the system to keep it afloat as well. Um, they're also
0: are they all on a, le- in a leaking boat? They're yeah, all... <laughs> they're all on the yeah, well, in a this leaking the boat.
1: Great, this is this is the Great Recession that hasn't gone away.
0: Mm. Um, and what about and Japan? Nothing
1: they, nothing they seem to be able to do can make it go away from the entire world system.
0: Yeah, and Japan's what they pretty have miraculous. Able to do
1: is there's probably not many big banks. The Deutsche Bank is always the big worry. Um, they've been cleaning up the failing bank system. They closed one down in Spain. They closed two down in Italy a few weeks ago. So they are tidying up some of the the, the kind of commercial areas of the banking system that might collapse and spread contagion throughout, so, the, throughout the entirety. Making
0: sacrifices, burnt offerings to the god of um, well, capital.
1: you know, I mean, well, no, it's actually not. I mean, these are real things they have to do. They can't have these banks with all these bad debts hanging over them. You know, they, you know, I mean... They've, they've been trying to. They've been working through the system bit by bit and trying to clean them up. And we'll, we'll, when we get to China, we'll see the reverse has been happening. So, in the case of the United Kingdom, the banks were opposed to um, pulling out of the European Union, um, and they hate the post-election uncertainty. Because now they don't know whether they're going to stay or go. They don't know when they're going to have to go. They don't know whether they should start renting office space in Frankfurt and Dublin now or whether they can wait another couple of years. Now, that's not going to send them bankrupt, but it doesn't please them. So the only bank in the United Kingdom that's still in trouble is the Royal Bank of Scotland. It hasn't made any money for nine years. Um, It's still got all these bad debts um, and, you know... And it's it's effectively been taken over by the government. The only reason it hasn't completely collapsed is that it is it it you know there's a kind of you know, unstated public guarantee that the Royal Bank of Scotland is able to survive through there. So things aren't in the banking sector as immediately disastrous in Europe as they were a few years ago. But they're still keeping the system afloat by pumping out huge amounts of money into the system.
0: What does Latvia now, Japan, as well? No, no, sorry? but let's forget about Japan because we're running out of time because Japan's just in a status. It's a, yeah, it's it's a, it's a miraculous... Are. I mean, it is, it's just we a living de- It's living dead and it just continues...
1: Well, it is, as Alice, you know, they say in Alice, all the running you can do to stay on the same spot. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Now, let's get on, as you say, to to some of the other bits. And the fascinating bit is what's happening in Latvia. Now, we haven't spoken about Latvia for some reason. I don't know why. But we're going to say something today.
2: Yep.
1: What happened? The poor Latvians, of course. What else are they going to do? All their banks got deeply involved in money laundering for none other than our friends, the Russian oligarchs. You know, <laughs> so all the banks are there. And what this meant is, you know, there's no point in putting putting your money into a Latvian bank. What you do is you put it into a Latvian bank and the Latvians then slice and dice it and send it around the world to all the other big real banks in the world. And indeed, what's come out is that sixty of the world's biggest banks were involved in recycling the money that the Latvian banks were involved in, in recycling, all this, you know.
0: Gangster well, money.
1: Well, yeah, well, really gangster money of all kinds. You know, God knows where it was, including, including, and this is the key bit, I think, money from the North Koreans. Ah. Ah. Now, what the, the rules of the game are,
0: money is has that, no is, nationality
1: is it if you've is it if you've got a bank Hmm. Uh, that has been caught in these illegal activities. Hmm. Oh, what, it's not like allowed the to trade Bank. outside itself. So the poor Latvian banks at the moment, the poor Latvians, they have a domestic banking system, but effectively it's not allowed to trade outside Latvia because none of the other banks are game now to touch them, um, except yes. the poor old Deutsche Bank, of course, who you know, is, is always up to no good. But um, <laughs> all the others are pulled back. Now, what we, what we now see is that in the case of China and the United States, Trump's been talking about and caught a couple of the smaller Chinese banks have been breaking the sanctions in relation to their friends and neighbours, the North Koreans. And what the U.S. is threatening to do is to put sanctions on those Chinese banks. Right. Now... That would have almost zero effect on everything. But, you know, it's a kind of symbolic thing to do. However, as we saw with the Latvian banks, if the rules of the game are applied, and it's not just the immediate banks who are doing the recycling, the money laundering, if it's not just them, it's what are called the banks of, of the ones who are, who are then transmitting the money, from there, because there's no point in putting this money into small Chinese banks. It has to get out of there so the North Koreans can buy from the Ukrainians or anybody else anything they want. So it has to pass through the others. And it's likely that it will pass through one or other of the four big Chinese banks. And if the U.S. starts down this path of punishing small Chinese banks for breaking the sanctions against North Korea, they may well be opening up a kind of Pandora's box into the whole of the Chinese banking system. Now, that's not a big problem in the sense that the Chinese banks, huge though they are in China, are very small players on the world stage. Uh, They aren't like Goldman Sachs or anyone like that. However, they are very important, of course, for Chinese trade, uh, for people buying and selling, which includes a lot of U.S. corporations. So this could open up a whole range of very difficult concerns for them. But So whoever thought that Latvia m- might turn out to be the centre of the world?
0: <laughs> um,
1: but, yeah. however, this leads into one other important thing and to our friends in relation to the Commonwealth Bank here. Yeah, right. Now... If you've got a situation where the rules of the game are saying to bankers now, you have to hold more money in case, well, not in case, what they're saying to me is you've got to hold more money for when the next real crisis happens. So we don't have to bail you out. You've got more money um, that that you've kept in store. This at the same time is interest rates are effectively zero how if you're a bank how can you make money if you can if you aren't allowed to lend as much and you're not getting any interest rate mm. well we know you charge fees and you engage in money laundering so when we look at what's going on in the commonwealth bank it's not surprising that in this extraordinary circumstance that the global banking system finds itself in of being made to hold more money and not being able to charge a real rate of interest, that they're finding other ways to get these huge profits that they've been able to get. So when we talk about saying, oh, it's the culture inside the Commonwealth Bank, no such thing. It's the culture that is now in the current global state of the world capitalist system. It's the culture of capitalism that is that real problem, the that. Uh, that they're going to face. Now, the problem is, of course, that beyond that, as we know, the private banks, well, I won't say private banks, the commercial corporate banks recycle money all the time. What is that money? It's the money that the other corporates exploit from us as wage slaves. So the whole of the banking system is a recycling system a kind of laundering system for the exploitation of working people. And that of course you won't be surprised to hear is not a crime in a capitalist <laughs> society. That's right. Our job however is to make it a crime by putting an end to capitalism. Mm. And we can have another look at how Marx might have suggested we might go about some of that in a couple of weeks' time.
0: Yes, because it's in two weeks' time. It's the celebration it of the 150th birthday 150th. of Das Kapital.
1: It is indeed. The and report we'll on there.
0: the capitalist system. Thanks very much for tuning in. All, right. All us.
1: these notes you'll, you'll put up online so people can follow them yep. there too. Thanks it's very good. much.
0: Okay. That was Humphrey, Humphrey McQueen. We have to go very quickly because coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. You're on Solidarity Breakfast or you're going from Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, We had a little bit of a look with uh, Vince Emmanuel about America. We went on to uh, the state of uh, cost of living with Lou Wheeler. We went to... uh, uh, Kevin, who this is the week that was, and in honour of his great piece this morning, we're going to uh, also in honour of uh, the Yarra Council's de- uh, decision to ban um, or get rid of Australia Day. We'll finish that. We'll finish that song, Funky Intervention. Goodbye from Annie this week.
1: I do not accept that
4: there is underlying racism in this country. I have always taken a more optimistic. Of
3: the they want you to wear the red, white, and blue, so then cross, car stickers, and tattoo. All the things that make you true blue. Ozzy, Ozzy, oi, oi, ready to stamp you But we are iconoclastic, meaning we don't reveal your icons Like Walsing, Matilda, Nick Kelly, or any of your lexicons And you beat up on Muslims and Indians Because they don't share the same patriotism Well, I will get patriotic when we stop our idiotic Commotion From meat pies, BBs, Vegemite, and Holden Man, our culture is based on being a bogan. Face up to the facts, Stubby's thongs and poor cats are artifacts, along with Paul Hogan. I'll throw another shrimp in the barbie, mate. Yeah. such a day when well, our people didn't even get a say until 1967 when we were considered citizens and before that we were on the floor and fauna list well, let me tell you the 26th of january celebrates the arrival of